everyone, it's Wes. I just wanted to give you a heads up about my new spinoff podcast, Subtext, which will be launching in mid-August. In it, poet Aaron Alonig and I explore the human condition by conducting a close reading of a text or film and co-writing an audio essay about it in real time. For a while, new episodes will appear in the PEL feed, but if you like it, you should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. You'll also find us at subtextpodcast.com. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 249 is what model of human nature should serve as the basis for education policy? Our texts for today are by John Dewey. Democracy and Education from 1916, chapters 1, 2, 4, and 24, and How We Think from 1910, chapter 1. For more information and links to these texts, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, turning the forces that buffeting me into delicious vegetarian chili in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, transmitting but not indoctrinating culture from Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn, respecting my inner child in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, extending the memory of the word problem to anything that perplexes and challenges my mind in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Jonathan Haber, trying to not think unproductively from Lexington, Massachusetts. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Tell us how you got on the show. Well, I actually reached out to you guys a few years ago. I was doing a public educational research project on massive open online courses and took 32 free courses in 12 months. So it was called the Degree of Freedom Project, and that was designed to see if these free massive courses were actually were the equivalent of college courses. And my major for this project was philosophy. So I modeled it after an undergraduate degree with distribution requirements and a major requirements. And one of the courses I took was not a MOOC, but a curated course from this organization called the Sailor Academy. And part of the things they curated was podcasts from The Partially Examined Life, which I had never heard of before, but I got hooked. I think it was a class on existentialism, so I think I heard your Sartre and uh, Heidegger episodes and just kept listening after that. And I wrote something about it on a blog. I can't remember if it was Seth or Dylan sent out a nice thank you note. It was definitely me. Well, it was very sweet, Seth. I I, I appreciate it. I still have it, like, tacked up to my door. All right. On your refrigerator with a magnet? (laughs) With the three-year-old drawing that you drew, Seth? (laughs) So you've written a few books on education, right? Or education-related. Your most recent book is on critical thinking, right? Yeah, I think this is what triggered, um, you know, our conversation, Wes. Wes and I have kind of connected here in Cambridge. And that experience I mentioned before with the massive open online courses led to a book with MIT Press. Uh, on MOOCs. It was part of their essential series, which tries to make complex topics in science, technology, philosophy more accessible to the public. And then this year, I've come out with a new one called Critical Thinking, about making the concept of critical thinking accessible to the reading public, but also, in particular, how to solve issues with, you know, why it's been so hard to get critical thinking to be improved in society and particularly in education, which is my day job as an educational researcher and consultant. And you suggested at least the first chapter of How We Think and chapter two, Democracy and Education. Dewey is awesome. 
And he's super, you know, if you want to read about education, like he's one of the couple of leading figures, but you want to give the audience a little introduction of, you know, why both of these texts, I was thinking maybe we do, since it's only one chapter, the how we think thing first. So how do you want us to start here? Probably the best way to why I picked how we think was critical thinking actually has an origin point that people sort of presume, well, you know, it incorporates logic, incorporates rhetoric psychology, science. So it must be, you know, really, really ancient, like kind of going back to Aristotle or at least early modern, particularly with regard to science. And that's one of the reasons it's been hard to kind of corral people on the critical thinking project, because there's this myth that, you know, we don't know what it is. The definition's up for grabs, and until we can figure out what it is, we can't go forward with the educational project or even critical thinking more generally. And that was one of the major myths I wanted to dispel with the book, because there's no consensus wording, particularly with critical thinking researchers. There's different definitions in critical thinking, but there is a sort of common model. And the way I got to that was through a genealogical approach to critical thinking rather than trying to synthesize all these definitions or come up with my own. And when you do the genealogy, yes, you know, critical thinking taps into philosophy and rhetoric and certainly uh, kind of early modern science and psychology, most recently cognitive science. But its synthesis into an existing thing was 1910 was Dewey's How We Think. Dewey outlines a concept of reflective thinking. You know, reflective thinking is really the first instantiation of the concept of there being a form of thinking distinct from intelligence and wisdom that is unique enough to be termed critical. And so when people have been talking about critical thinking ever since, which is really, you know, the last 110 years, they've really been in dialogue with Dewey's concept of reflective thinking and how we think. So yeah, the way he begins, right, is contrasting reflective thinking with more ordinary stream of consciousness thinking or daydreaming where there's a maybe random, maybe not necessarily random, but not so organized a sequence of thoughts and fantasies and and so on. Whereas in reflection, there's, he calls it con-sequence. There is a consecutive ordering that links all those thoughts together in a certain way. And each outcome refers back to preceding thoughts. And the contents of current thoughts are picked up and used in the, or at least the portions are used in the next thoughts. So you kind of get a psychological account of something that seems, you know, related ultimately to inference and inferential relationships between propositions. So there's something about the connection of our thoughts that gets us toward reflective thinking. How did you know it was consequence and not just consequence, since that's the way it's spelled? I thought he was trying to do something special. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, basically, the sentence begins, reflection involves not simply a sequence of ideas, but a... Oh, I see what you're saying. He is trying to do... It's con-sequence. I thought he was doing clever wordplay. Yeah, consequence, which is a consequence. Yeah, it'll be related to the fact that one thought could be the consequence of another. Exactly. Wait a second, are we reading Heidegger? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) No, but they're not completely alien to each other. I know what you're looking at. So in this version that I'm looking at, which has the page numbers, are you looking at the web page? I have a real book here. Okay, because the version I'm looking at, which has the book pages, consequence is broken across a line. So it is con dash, but then it skips to the next line for sequence. 
it's not broken across the line in mine. They emphasize it by making the con italicized as well. So. Exactly. Even though it's broken across the line in mine, the con <laughs> is, is italicized. In fact, because Dewey is not like known for playful language, so that sort of stands out. But I think Wes hits it. It's thinking that has some structure to it. And you have to remember Dewey was very influenced by the development of thinking in children, particularly young children. And we get to democracy and education. He talks a lot about the sort of evolutionary stages children go through or that we go through from childhood to adulthood. But in the next section, he's talking about the undisciplined but still connected thinking of children that he describes as, and I'm quoting here, the imaginative stories poured forth by children possesses all degree of internal congruity. Some are disjointed, some are articulated when connected. They simulate reflective thought. Indeed, they usually occur in minds of logical capacity. These imaginative enterprises often precede thinking of the close-knit type and prepare the way for it. So he was seeing the sort of evolution of thoughts and the curiosity of very young children and seeing where that led because a lot of his work and a lot of the kind of analysis and our thinking is, how do you take these natural tendencies that children have that they do connect thoughts, but they can do it in undisciplined ways just as easily as they could do it in disciplined ways? And how do you channel those in such a way that leads to what he calls reflective thinking? I always read Dewey as a synthesist, right? He does want to distinguish, as you're saying, critical thinking from undisciplined thinking, but discipline can't be seen as something that is going against natural tendencies. As you're saying, it's a matter of channeling natural tendencies. So sort of reading some tendency that is implicit already in the way children and people in general learn and think and like, well, how can we sort of follow the teleological thread of that? to figure out what would be not the ideal way of doing that, because, you know, that's his sort of overall argument against teleological thought, is that it can't be that this is the mature way of being, this is the mature way of thinking, and the child is just a lacking version of that. It's not that, but it's still using that, you know, seed to envision what this not best, but better way of channeling thinking. Well, it's natural and accretive, but as you said, it's not teleological, but it's a similar way of not being teleological in the way you would understand evolution as not being genuinely aimed at some end, but accreting and having a a self-consistent whole along the way. In this section that we just read, you know, reflective thinking is aimed at knowledge, belief about facts and truths and allows us to have the acceptance or rejection of something as reasonably probable or improbable. Thinking thought is generative about judgment. It's not the judgment itself, but it's the process, the activity of reflective thought is the activity of thinking that is the generator of judgment. And I think one way of thinking of it is reflective thinking is not natural. I mean, it's very much based on his conception of scientific thinking. So, with the same way the scientific method or thinking scientifically is something that one must be trained up for, but he builds it off of aspects of human nature that are natural. For example, sort of of curiosity, uh, the need to inquire and to explore something you see in infants this need to do anything and everything to sort of gain sensation, to kind of understand the world around them, any capacity they have, touch, smell, putting things in their mouth, just that's their way to sort of of the massive sort of curiosity about the world. So in a way, reflective thinking is an end in that it's something you want to direct the young towards, but it's not necessarily the sort of 
natural human state or like an abstract ideal. As we read throughout these readings, uh, that one thing Dewey stood against was the notion that there's an abstract ideal separate from the world and how we live. I'm a little curious about the idea of saying that it's not natural because it's something, a faculty that requires training. Because it seemed to me that it was, in fact, that natural character of thinking that it's able to be trained that's going on. And it's not natural in the way in which a rock is hard and it manifests that characteristic. But just calling the activity of a child putting something in its mouth or some kind of early state of learning as being the natural one and everything else is unnatural doesn't seem to me to quite characterize what he's talking about. It seemed to me that the whole process is natural, even if you have the beginning is a state of open capacity and potential that has to be refined and is subject to habits and training and education, all of those things that are possible with it. But in fact, you might even argue that to get to its most natural fruition, it requires that kind of training, requires social activity, requires proper environment. So I, I want to hold on to it being natural, even if it requires time. Yeah, you're just amending the, Jonathan was saying, not natural in the sense of it actually requires formal education. And we'll talk about that when we get to the next book, but as opposed to simply being brought up in the way of life of the community, it needs actual formal nurturing. But Dylan, you're right, as Dewey will point out, that formal education to be effective will have to simply nurture the natural active impulses. It's not going to just give the child something that's not already there. So it's just curating it. I see why it would be important on Dewey's terms to be saying that we need to have a kind of proactive activity involved and to contrast it with being natural and mean that natural as being whatever your laissez-faire attitude would would be, that would be whatever would happen naturally. This is maybe a separate argument to have. (laughs) Rousseau's take on education, which he does talk about in Democracy in Education a little bit, but, you know, not in the parts we read, but that just as a point of contrast, you know, he kind of thinks Rousseau is 75% right, let's say, or was the best that he could say at the time. Rousseau's view just being society taints people, that we are like the acorn that is will naturally grow into the oak so long as we have, you know, of course we need nutrients and things to do that, but that it's too much planning that gets in the way and stunts that. And while Dewey doesn't entirely agree with that, there's definitely something to that. And the people, I think that these education books are arguing against maybe have a a more Lockean blank slate view of the mind. That's definitely correct in that Dewey thinks about that in terms of traditional education, that traditional education can squash the imagination and squash the desire to inquire and all the things that would lead to reflective thinking can be squeezed out of you by school systems built on the kind of blank slate sort of presumption of the mind. So he is an advocate for a different form of education, which, you know, has been termed progressive education. That term has gotten muddled. We can talk about that later. But I'd say really a way to get to sort of Dylan's question I think might be to look at another philosopher who had a profound influence on Dewey, obviously, since Dewey was a pragmatic philosopher, as was Charles Saunders Peirce. And in your episode on Peirce, where you read two essays from, uh, was it Dylan Scientific Monthly? 
One in particular basically gives a pragmatic take on thinking. You know, thinking is not a divine spark. Thinking is not something that sets apart from baser animals. Thinking is a means to an end. And the end that Peirce identifies is the dispelling of doubt. You know, that is the point of thinking. That's what sets off thinking. And once you have settled your doubt, thinking can stop. You've, you've accomplished your end. And so in that paper, he is describing four different ways you can dispel doubt or you can achieve beliefs. And I think you've covered all those really well in that episode, but it's you could dispel doubt by believing what you already believe, you know, a priori approach to thinking, right? Confirmation bias. You could just sort of believe that which makes you comfortable. Okay. Then you or you could believe what you're told, right? That's authority. Or you can rebel against authority and believe the opposite, you know, just out of tenacity. That's the third unproductive way of thinking. And I think Persis identified all those, a priority, authority, and tenacity as you having their uses, but they're not particularly good if your goal is to get to the truth. And for that, he proposes science as a model, taking an idea, holding it conditionally until it's been tested and, and vetted and then accepting it, uh, again, conditionally and, and until it's been proven otherwise. And that's his way of thinking. And if you look at how we think, particularly those, those early chapters, I think it's fairly clear critical thinking itself is a pragmatic concept. It's something that derived out of Peirce's original observation. Dewey's just extending it to all of inquiry. Yeah, I think we see that. This gets us towards the end of the reading, but I think it actually makes sense to start here and then move backwards to some of the other things because he can he kind of builds up. But on section three, phases of reflective thinking, he'll talk about, Jonathan, what you were just talking about, the fact that thinking is prompted by the need to get rid of doubt. So he says, we may carry our account further by noting that reflective thinking in distinction from other operations to which we apply the name of thought involves one, a state of doubt, hesitation, perplexity, mental difficulty, in which thinking originates, and two, an act of searching, hunting, inquiring to find material that will resolve the doubt, settle and dispose of the perplexity. And then what follows, getting back to some of what Dylan was talking about with naturalness, this is something that he does make sound actually quite natural, which is that this circumstance of being put into perplexity and then immediately investigating it is just sort of part of everyday life. So he'll say down a little bit, talking about someone who's going to make an inference that it's raining from the various signs around them. The turning of the head, the lifting of the eyes, the scanning of the heavens are activities adapted to bring to recognition facts that will answer the question presented by the sudden coolness. And then he'll say, it may again seem forced to speak of this looking almost automatic as an act of research or inquiry. But once more, if we are willing to generalize our conceptions of our mental operations to include the trivial and the ordinary, as well as the technical and recondite, there's no good reason for refusing to give this title to the act of looking. For the result of the act is to bring facts before the mind that enable a person to reach a conclusion on the basis of evidence. So we are prompted in our perplexity to make an inference. The education and the thing that you have to train and develop is the right disposition and openness towards being perplexed. And so there are things like stepping out and wondering about the rain, just like you described, Wes, it reveals our own natural capacity to just make sense of the world. But there is something to be tuned, especially for more complicated things, in having the right kind of openness to things 
so that you are actively sussing things up? Yeah, I think it comes naturally that you are perplexed. I mean, that is the origin of the desire for thinking. I mean, just taking the quote Wes made and comparing it to something Peirce said, that with the doubt, therefore the struggle begins, and with the cessation of doubt, it ends. Hence, the sole object of inquiry is a settlement of opinion. We may fancy this is not enough for us, and that we seek not merely an opinion, but a true opinion, but put this fancy to the test and it proves groundless. For as soon as a firm belief is reached, and we are entirely satisfied whether a belief is true or false. So if you think about the rain, you could be curious about it. You are naturally curious about it. You want to know, but you could believe it it is raining because you've sinned against the gods, right? Or the priesthood has told you you've sinned against the gods. Or you can defy that and say, you know, no, it is raining for reasons that have nothing to do with anything supernatural. But the process that requires cultivation is to come up with a thought, a hypothesis as to why it might be raining. Think of tests that hypothesis could be put through and then determine when you've confirmed that those tests have been successful. And that's probably unnatural. It's not the exact right way to put it, but it, it's something that channels natural impulses in productive ways. So becoming the sharp critical thinker is increasing your ability, Dylan was just saying, your openness to perplexity, but more so, I think, even the the fortitude to remain in a state of perplexity, right? To not be satisfied with whatever the first, as Per says, it's just attention. And then a belief comes along, you know, an explanation for the thing that we're unsure about comes along, we just grab it. <laughs> and then, ah, oh, we're relieved. And that no, we have to be satisfied. This is why ordinary people hate philosophy because they don't want to just remain forever in a state of, of suspension. But that's the virtue that we strive toward. It's not the same thing as skepticism, though. That's the challenge, right? I mean, it's the right degree of suspension and the right times that you engage in understanding what the degree of doubt is. Yeah, and I think having studied philosophy, this is second nature, the notion of sort of being curious about phenomena and trying to come up with productive ways of answering questions about it. I think, in a way, critical thinking, I, I often describe it as bringing the philosopher's toolkit into everyday life, right? Because I think not everybody wants to or even sort of needs to study philosophy, but there is certain ways of organizing one's thinking. There's tools like logic or different logical systems. There's ways of understanding the sort of complexity of language and the effort it takes to move language from its sort of natural state into structured statement that analysis can be applied to, and a number of other tools and skills and dispositions. And, and that's what the definition of critical thinking fundamentally falls to, right? It turns out that we don't need this set of words that we all agree on. I think there actually is a consensus that critical thinking, which is, you know, really what we now call Dewey's reflective thinking that has evolved over the last hundred years, it is a set of core knowledge, right? It's understanding logic, understanding certain language skills, but also understanding certain psychological factors of the human makeup. But then that knowledge, unlike philosophy, you could pick up that knowledge relatively quickly. It's not that difficult to master simple informal logic, for example, or some of the graphical forms of logic, you know, Tolman diagrams or whichever. But you have to put that into practice, and that's what takes a long time. You need to be able to apply your kind of logical argumentation to increasingly sophisticated arguments, you know, move from a toy argument you might learn about in class to a newspaper editorial, a political speech. And that takes years because you have to just sort of continually do it. 
And then finally, you need the dispositions to do that, because if you have the ability to do it and you're good at it, but you refuse to do it when you have to analyze a political belief that you share, for example, an argument you might be inclined to agree with, then you may not have the dispositions to be a critical thinker. But all three of those taken together is what make you a critical thinker. And I think that comes natural to people who've had some philosophical training to use this toolkit to apply to complex problems and be ready to sort of live with the outcomes of those inquiries. When did your book, The Critical Voter, come out? 2016. It used sort of political election politics to teach critical thinking skills, and it had no discernible impact on the public. But actually, that was something I, most of that was written in 2012 as a podcast. It was a podcast and part of a curriculum that used the 2012 election to analyze or basically use the election as case studies to teach about logic and rhetoric and bias and the other factors that have sort of gone into this collection of skills I refer to as practical, critical thinking. So I asked because you gave us that book, I think, at our live show, and it sat next to my bed for a long time. It might even still be there. And I did not read it because I felt like the critical voter, do I need my critical thinking skills to pick a candidate? It's so freaking easy, given the choices that are available to us. I mean, maybe if I was you know, contemplating among the many Democratic nominees this time, early on when it still seemed like there were real options and real questions to think about, but given the general election dynamics, especially going into 2016, I was just like, I don't need this for that. But you, you seem to be saying that even when something seems an obvious choice, even when the arguments you're hearing are ones you will natively agree with, in fact, that's when your critical thinking skills should go into overdrive, right? That's when you should really be suspicious of the things that you find most natural and in accord with your tendencies. One of the reasons I joke the book had no impact, but I think one of the reasons people resisted it is even though I, I presented it as an election is one of the few shared experiences we have as a society, right? We're all watching different cable stations now. We're watching different news stations. You know, the last Seinfeld was probably the last time we all watched the same TV show, but an election rivets us. We're all encountering the same thing at the same time, or at least we used to. The concept of the book was basically, let's use this election experience as a shared experience to do something productive, to learn critical thinking skills. I think the election, certainly the 2012 election, you know, more than 2016, elicited there were still relatively normal political speeches. There were debates where, yeah, they were kind of aggressive, but they weren't as bizarre. People resisted the book for the very reason you said, Mark, that, oh, this is trying to get me to rethink my politics through this sort of Spock-like critical thinking lens. I don't want to do that, right? I know what I'm going to do. So I'd say that was not what the book was intended to do. Although I did find that reaction to it interesting because I would say, and I'm not opening up a can of worms, that one of the reasons we have the politics we have now, which is rife with sort of confirmation bias taking precedent over virtually all forms of reason and even over previous forms of manipulation, one of the reasons our politics is sick as it is, is we've resisted the urge to sort of think about our choices, right? Even if we come to a decision that we would have come to in any regard, I think going through the exercise of thinking about something is important. And especially if you think about what the philosopher's toolkit is being applied to, why do we resist applying it to actually the most important decisions we make, you know, who we are going to be ruled by? Those are the very things that we seem to be most resistant about critical thinking about. So I wanted that out there just so we could then link it back to Dewey. 
for Dewey, it's very much, we get an ongoing theme here of his pragmatism is such that you don't think in the abstract, you don't think in a Spock-like way, right? Because you're always shooting towards some practical aim, even if it's a fairly abstract practical aim. I want to understand this better. And as far as teaching goes, like you really want to take advantage of what the kid is naturally interested in and build on that, that teaching. Now we're going to sit down and learn formal logic. Like that's going to be a hard sell. You really have to put that in the context of because we want to make intelligent decisions about exactly what you're doing in your book. Here's how you could use informal logics to make a more objective, more cool-headed decision to keep in the state of suspension rather than jumping right to the the first and most natural answer. Isn't it called democracy in education? I guess that's a question, but that means we're sort of shifting to that book. Is there more parts of uh, how we think that we want to be done with before we do that? I guess the short version of my answer is I think that if you're going to link thinking about our decisions about our leadership and that being important to bring critical thinking to bear, you're in concert with something that seems to me to at least be a theme for Dewey, which is that fundamental to a strong democracy is the development of a strong populace who can act as critical thinkers of their own. And none of that, of what I just said, is like explicitly line for line in Dewey, but it sort of subsumes in what he writes about. So I'd say they're fellow travelers. Well, I think also, Mark, that, you know, I know that era you're really kind of in love with, that sort of post-Civil War, late 19th, early 20th century. You know, remember, that was a period of increasing complexity of the world with industrialization and, and growth. And so there was a real debate at the time of whether we should be a democracy in terms of whether we should be ruling ourselves versus being ruled by experts, right? And, and Dewey was very involved with those debates and sort of pushed back against the notion that the average citizen can never have the intelligence or skills to master the sort of body of knowledge and know what to do with it in order to fulfill their democratic role. Therefore, we must be ruled by experts, right? We must live in a technocracy. And I think if you look at how we think, which preceded democracy and education, but that's what he's talking about. This is what a democratic citizen should be able to do. You know, democratic citizen should be able to think reflectively, you know, as he defines reflective thinking in how we think. And so I think that's really the link. I mean, I think there's a certain sense that this is something that all humans should do and education should be built around it. But he was writing in a very American context. And I think particularly a built around his devotion, almost a sort of religious fervent belief about democracy. Did Dewey really believe that this was something that could be ubiquitous in the American population? I mean, I, I don't have a sense of his time frame. And like, he seems to have a real sensitivity to situation and context and opportunity, at least in the democracy and education chapters that I read. He seems to be very sensitive. And I want to ask, like, is he presenting a set of prerequisites for education and democracy that are just unachievable or unrealistic? Did he really believe that it was possible for all the people who are participating in the American democracy, in any case, to reach this level of reflective? Did he think that education had that power? I would say that he did in that, especially since it was a red in democracy and education that's built around a specific view of what it is to be human. I mean, I think that's a message of philosophies of education 
always are built around some kind of theory of the nature of the mind. Epistemology, even metaphysics, if you look at going back to Plato and this notion that even as a metaphor, that we are born with all knowledge within us and it just has to be brought out through Rousseau's notion of that we are born free and society corrupts us. In both those cases, that gives you a direction of what education should look like. Right? You've got sort of Rousseau's ideas. You take them through the process of beginning to learn as a savage and eventually move them up towards civilization. In Dewey's case, he fundamentally believes, and this is really the cornerstone of his philosophy, that there are no dichotomies between mind and body or all the dichotomies that philosophy has sort of struggled with, he rejects. You know, for him, life is and development is about experience, and experience for him is a very thick concept. It is sort of the ongoing process of humans interacting with the world, and that is very natural, right? We have an experience, we learn from it, eventually it becomes a habit, and so on and so on. There's various things in the chain that we'll get into. One of the reasons, I don't know if he says in it, this is something that all Americans can achieve if they just put their backs to it, but I think he says Getting back to what we talked about with Dylan earlier, these are natural tendencies within us that we can channel in certain ways, and we do channel them in certain ways. In his time, he felt that we were channeling them into sort of factory mode education where curiosity and desire for inquiry gets squashed, especially as you get further and further into your education. So I think he is saying that it is achievable for everyone to learn in this way. Wasn't Alan Bloom who said the most important book of education in philosophy was The Republic? Am I remembering that correctly? Probably. And Dewey says something similar. This might have been one of the chapters that was not officially part of our selection. However, just the fact that you teach different people differently, that some of them you recognize that they're going to be more amenable to philosophy. Some of them are going to be more amenable to the kind of stuff that warriors. However, of course, he acknowledges the major limitation, which for the rest of us sort of rules out Plato as being a good philosopher of education, but, you know, of dividing things only into three classes. That for Dewey, everybody is their own class. And that's really ideally what a teacher has to acknowledge and serve, that everybody's got their own, the way Fritjof Bergman put it, was every child is like juggling plates and the teacher is coming and throwing another plate and how easy it is to ruin it and make them drop all the plates that you really need to pay attention to what they're currently juggling and feed into that. And that everybody, Dewey says, you know, has the right and the ability to be fed in that way and expand in the way that they're able to. And he even says, it's none of your business as the teacher to figure out what their innate mental capacities are, as if you're going to say, I'm going to teach the best and screw the rest, <laughs> or whatever they say. Some very well-meaning teachers have that philosophy because they just, they want to put their energy where it's going to do the most good. So they, they'll focus on the smart students, the ones that seem to really care about school and focus on them. But, you know, I think it's not just that he wants education to train people for democracy, but that the ethic of education should be influenced by our democratic ideal that everybody has this fundamental right, you know, no one left behind, basically to be nourished. Of course, the practical problem that this takes an enormous amount of work to give every individual student the kind of learning that they will be most amenable to. There's a lot packed in to what you said, Mark. The distinction between Plato and Dewey, they have 
definitely certain things in common, but if you think about Dewey's fervent belief in democracy as the sort of superior way of organizing society, Plato, as we all know, had sort of mixed feelings about that. And the notion of educating more people or even sort of organizing education in some way was novel in ancient Greece, where it was not a sort of permanent fixture, but it was something that was undergoing growth and evolution. And if you read about the sort of history of American education, there was many rapid changes all taking place during Dewey's lifetime. So the notion that form of education was up for grabs was very concrete and real for him. I think the concept of every child getting the sort of attention they deserve, that's very resonant now, right? Because we're living in a time when there's staggering inequity in education. And it's been brought out even more, obviously, in the COVID crisis when kids who are left behind are being left even more behind if they don't have the right computer in their house or the place to work or a supportive family. But then the only solution to not leaving them left behind is leave everybody behind. So we're involved with all these tremendous, terrible choices to make. But I think in Dewey's time, again, he was not saying the teacher must come up with a unique curriculum for every child. Unlike progressive educators who Dewey is often tagged with, and we can get into the distinction between what we thought of a progressive educator and what Dewey's real philosophy is, he believed that teachers were there to teach a curriculum, to teach a core curriculum, included content. It was also socializing them to be good democratic citizens. And where you focus on the unique individual child is by finding out what is their natural interests, what is the real world practical problem that will get them motivated. And that was the major change he would advocate was change in the nature of education, not that we're going to abandon all structure and let kids bloom and go whatever direction they want. He's often tagged with that critique, but it's really not true. He had a very clear idea what students needed to learn, but he wanted to use the interests and energies and what excites the individual student as the starting point for that. Should we turn to the beginning of democracy and education? It seems like we thoroughly made that transition. I think we did, yeah. I had put the question at the beginning of this episode as what kind of model of human nature should serve as the basis for education policy. And I really like the way that he gets us into this book by talking about the kind of creature we are. And I use the metaphor of the plates, but he describes any organism as something that turns forces that are buffeting it into means to further its own existence. Like that's the difference between an animate organism and a rock, say. As long as it is growing, the energy it expends in thus turning the environment to account is more than compensated by the return it gets. It grows. Life is a self-renewing process through action on the environment. So just having this very biological model. Right. So he's going to extend this to the social life of the community, right? On analogy, we go from organisms and growth and reproduction to the perpetuation of a certain kind of social existence by passing down norms and skills and practices and those sorts of things. I was reading this intro, not just about life in general, but even more directly, I was reading in, this is going to be about education, just like the plates analogy. We're always being buffeted by social influences. And the question is, do we just like a stone get weathered down by those things? Or are they nourishing enough that they can enable us to ricochet those instead. And like, I'm going to absorb it and turn this oxygen into carbon dioxide so that those are the two models of bad and good education. So does that work for a society as well? 
that's the whole argument in this book, right? Is that there is such a thing as a sort of education that doesn't work like that. We're not just wax, similar to the platonic rejection of the wine container wine model where the teacher just pours something into the recipient and it's a transfer of information. Something else is communicated and passed on through this process. And that's what's really interesting about it. Ideally, right, there are forms of conditioning, you know, operant conditioning and things he talks about where, yeah, you just condition behavior or you give someone information or so on. But there are forms of education which are more than that. On page seven of the PDF, he says, society exists through a process of transmission quite as much as biological life. This transmission occurs by means of communication of habits of doing, thinking and feeling from the older to the younger. Without this communication of ideals, hopes, expectations, standards, opinions from those members of society who are passing out of the group life to those who are coming into it, social life could not survive. You know, I think if you tie that, Dylan, to what Mark was quoting from the original it makes sense in the context if you think of Dewey as sort of doing away with all dualisms, right? Mind-body, self-environment, those are all part of an integrated whole. And so he's coming at it. His biggest influence at the time was Darwin, this idea that we are an evolved species, but we are constantly interacting with the evolution that created us the same way we are not a disembodied mind interacting with the world or only having perception of the world through our senses. He was a critique of that. We know we actually interact with the world, and through that interaction, there is an effect. And through that effect, there is a consequence, and we use that to interact with the world in a new way the next time. And it's complex and perpetual, but over the course of that, you develop habits. That's his concept of experience, is really that notion of building that into habit. And in fact, education is, he doesn't use this word, maybe it's later on in the book, is a selection function. The right kind of education is a selection function on an evolutionary process, a natural adaptive process of biological entities interacting with their environment and then that reflecting back upon them and coming up with new consequences. And one of the reasons for an unnatural kind of education in that sort of cultivating way is that it is required, it amounts to a social selection function. And this probably gets back to what we talk about, about natural, right? Everything's natural in that it's from human beings interacting with nature. So there's nothing necessarily unnatural about a factory education system, but it doesn't lead to a good quality evolutionary path. And so therefore, Dewey's advocating taking a different path. He was a progressive thinker in that he thought the world could get better, but not that it was naturally progressing towards a natural end state of perfection. And part of that would be his democratic ideals, that you want to cultivate an education of individuals that are fit for a robust democracy. You could also imagine a kind of education that would be cultivating people who are most fit for an authoritarian regime. Absolutely. He saw it in his time, and he also recognize this unique benefits of democracy, not just as a way of governing. In fact, I'll have to find out where he said it, but I think he found democratic politics to be the least representative of the virtues of democracy. It was democracy as a way of life. Kind of like when I saw you guys talk at Brown about the Tocqueville, right? That was sort of manifestation of what that looked like in America several decades after the revolution. And this book was written seven years or so after that. It's still this sort of question unfolding is, what is democratic man? You know, what does it mean to be a democratic 
human being in a democratic society is not just about voting in elections. In fact, that can be the least of it. And that's why I think he saw the schoolroom as sort of a microcosm of the sort of democratic world we wanted to create, teaching them the democratic life they want to live. I can't shake my speculation just because I know he read Emerson about how much to impose the idea of an organism on society itself. Clearly, he's interested in individuals as biological organisms and really trying to play up the continuous nature of the life of the mind with the life of the body, that it is tied to interests. I don't want to say they're ultimately bodily, but it's a matter of getting rid of that mind-body dualism. And then in places in here, he talks about society, like Wes was saying, society reproduces itself by passing knowledge, passing customs, passing habits, passing points of view between individuals. If we had some stark thing where the entire adult population die, if we had a children of the corn plague sort of thing, like society would just be dead. It would become a new thing if the children had to work from scratch. But beyond that, would we want to talk about democracy as a healthy society, thinking of society as an organism? How useful is that? Well, I think in the beginning, he's just thinking of it for the purposes of transmission, the idea that the society has to be reproduced in order to continue to exist. And that reproduction at the social level just is education. And education just does have something to do with those social influences that transmit beliefs and customs, for instance, from one person to another. So I don't know that we're meant to draw any other bigger conclusions from that. He basically says there is no community, there's no culture, there is no society without the transmission of cultural habits, beliefs, and so forth, which we call education, but which is also habituation. And so this question about democracy versus totalitarianism, the mechanism for passing that along is identical. And so there's still a level of, and this is the thing I can't get from Dewey, is he as violently radical as he sounds like he is? Or is he a guy who stumbled across a really radical idea and is still trying to frame it in some kind of context that, like, is he like, oh, well, in order for a robust democracy, we need to pay attention to the fact that culture is transmitted by the way we interact with our children on a daily basis and whatever. Like, oh, wait a second. You just stumbled across this amazing idea about how there literally is no such thing as culture (laughs) if it's not transmitted. He uses the word environment in the second chapter. The beginning of the second chapter is society is basically an environment. He says at the end of the first section, the environment consists of those conditions that promote or hinder, stimulate or inhibit the characteristic activities of a living being. And so Mark asked the question, is there a healthy society or an unhealthy society? And I think there'd be two ways he would answer that question. One would be the answer that in his devotion to democratic ideals and the character of human beings that are best fit for a democracy and the cultivation of those characteristics as being most in line with what are the most natural and flourishing tendencies of human beings in general, he clearly is a partisan of that, that notion. But he would also not say that a society is by itself or in its own way or by accident anything other than an environment that may or may not cultivate those things. So a healthy environment, a healthy society from his perspective, would be one that cultivates those virtues. That's not to say that it won't be also cultivating some virtues and be an environment that's affecting a person regardless. 
And remember from Darwin, everything's contingent. He does believe that progress is possible. And the notion that educating the youth to fit into the function of society, that goes back to the Republic. So that conception is not new. But I'd say where Dewey is radical, I think, is in his conception of the person and sort of abandoning hundreds of years of philosophical conceptions that were based on the sort of the variety of dualisms, right? So he's pointing out from his understanding of science and Darwin and observation of children and psychology that all those things are, if not false, they're not relevant to the problems at hand. You know, the problems at hand require a type of education that stands the maximum chance to prepare people to live as free individuals. And remember, for him, freedom was not necessarily describing the sort of, we are all born free. It was something you grow into, you earn. You know, that is the benefit of living in a democratic society is we are living among people. We are people and we are among people who have put in the work to be free individuals. Well, that sounds like a good way to end part one. Folks can come back next week for part two or become a partially examined life citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support and hear the whole thing right now.